Welcome to Copyright Clearance in this podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, August 4th, 2017. Our weekly guest is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, who joins me today from New York. Welcome back to Beyond the Book, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So I know you are pumped this week to tell us about a pair of copyright-related lawsuits, one new and the other nearly 10 years in the court system. So let's start with a decision that saw a pair of big five publishers win a summary judgment against an upstart company that was creating elementary grade level learning guides to classic novels. Yes, indeed. Uh, I'll try not to jump out of my skin here talking about these cases. You're right. I'm pretty excited about these today. Uh, The first case, a fascinating case that we've covered here since it was uh, filed in January of this year. It involves an upstart company called Moppet Books, whose founders, uh, Frederick Colting and Melissa Medina, were creating these really interesting, cool little books for kids called Kinder Guides. They're sort of like cliff notes for kids with illustrations and plot summaries and historical tidbits about the famous works and their famous authors. Now, a lot of these works were created around public domain titles, so no problem there. But a handful, about nine or ten of these works, were created around works that were still under copyright, including Truman Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany's, Jack Kerouac's On the Road, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea. And that, of course, drew the attention of two publishers, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, as well as the estates of these authors who filed suit against Moppet Books, alleging that the works in questions were in fact unauthorized derivatives cast as study guides intended for the elementary school set. Just one week after oral arguments were presented in court at the end of July, uh, a federal judge this week sided with the publishers and issued a summary judgment finding that the works were indeed infringing. So, as you noted in your PW reporting, Andrew, there were some interesting, even unusual aspects uh, to this decision. Indeed, the most unusual of all is that Judge Jed Rakoff, the judge in this decision, issued his finding of infringement without an accompanying memorandum of law explaining why he did so. Uh, so as of this moment, we don't know why these books were infringing, only that he found them infringing, uh, and found them infringing pretty quickly after oral arguments. So obviously, in his mind, it was sort of an open and shut case. Of course, not having the memo didn't stop the publishers in this case from issuing a statement claiming that the ruling, and I'll quote here from their statement, unambiguously supports copyright holders' ability to exercise control over the publication of their works, which, come on, guys, you know, stop taking your cues from Sean Spicer here. Yeah, you won the ruling, but, you know, as we all know too well on this show, fair use determinations are always pretty complex. There's a four-factor fair use test here, and without a memo of law accompanying it, it's impossible to say just how unambiguous that support really is. All right. So no doubt the publishers, though, will take the win any way they can get it. And you just raised the fair use test. What was the crux of the issue in this case? Can you speculate why the judge might have ruled against Moppet? And we have to say might, because as you mentioned, we don't have the actual memorandum. Yeah, so you know, the publishers and authors were claiming that MAPA was, as, as I mentioned before, creating these unauthorized derivative works and creating what the company calls these learning guides. Uh, basically, the cl- they claim, the publishers and authors claim that MAPA was using copyrighted elements of the works 
to create another sort of unauthorized, unlicensed edition of the work. Moppet, on the other hand, argued that their editions were protected by fair use, and they did seek the advice of counsel before they published these books, and they do appear to have tried to find the line of just how much they could take from each, each of these works and how much of their own expression they needed to add to be found non-infringing. Clearly, Judge Rakoff thought they missed the mark. And Now, I've actually seen these books, so I can say that they really are quite nice. Are they infringing? I really can't say. Either way, um, I think they're probably close. Uh, and you know what would really be awesome here is a legal opinion. In his order, Judge Rakoff said that one would come in due course. Uh, as of this recording, it hasn't yet appeared. But stay tuned, because uh, I will be reading that, and we will be talking about it on this show, I'm sure, in the coming weeks. All right, then. So give us a hint. What are some of those loose ends that you'll be following up on? Sure. So, you know, some of the loose ends that are still out there with this case, Rakoff did not rule on one claim of, of the claim of willful infringement here, and he was waiting to see if Moppet was going to raise an advice of counsel defense. In other words, the company had sought counsel on how not to be infringing, but they got the wrong advice, and that's actually a defense against willfulness. Now, there's a complicating factor here, and that's that if the name Frederick Colting sounds familiar, it should. In 2009, Colting was sued by J.D. Salinger for his book 60 Years Later, Coming Through the Ride which was described as an unauthorized sequel to Catcher in the Rye. In July of 2009, Judge Deborah Batts issued a preliminary injunction against Colting, blocking 60 years later from publication in the U.S. But that ruling was vacated on appeal, and the parties actually came to a settlement in 2011. Uh, of course, it was a confidential settlement. But this could come back to haunt Colting in this case on the willfulness count, because the publishers are going to go ahead and claim that he's a serial infringer. And in fact, they did sort of raise this in their complaint. You know, just one funny side note here about that initial suit. Salinger was alive when the suit was first filed against Colting, and he was actually the named plaintiff. And I remember standing outside the courtroom, courtroom 24B here in New York City, when the bailiff came out and called out plaintiff, plaintiff, to which the lawyers in the case sort of looked around and started laughing before saying, yeah, pretty sure he's not coming. <laughs> but Colting's history aside, there's one more troubling aspect of this case that I'm going to be following up on, and that's you know, I got in touch with Colting this week to talk about the case, and he said yes, first of all, they would appeal. But notably, the books in question here have not been for sale for some months. And it seems that the plaintiffs in this case had sent takedown notices to Amazon.com as well as to other retailers and the Moppet Books web host. So without a court order or any finding of infringement, those takedown notices appear to have effectively blocked publication. Now, I hope to learn more details about how that happened, uh, but if the mere filing of this suit which was contested, caused these books to be blocked for sale on Amazon or on their website, that would be actually be a violation of the law and abuse of the takedown process. Now, Colting told me that they wanted to keep selling the books, and in fact, they needed to, to pay for their lawyers, but they were told that in order to keep selling the books, they would actually need to undertake additional litigation to overcome the takedown notices, which being a small operation, they could not afford. Now, if that's true, that's not the law. But at this time, I don't know exactly what the details are there. But I am looking into this, and I hope to report on that next week. When we return with Andrew Albanese, we'll learn the latest developments in the long-standing publisher's suit for infringement against Georgia State University. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. 
Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, August 4th, 2017. Joining me as he does each week is Publishers Weekly senior writer Andrew Albanese, who is in his element today because we are talking about publishing and copyright infringement cases. Now, last week, Andrew, the Georgia State University e-reserve case had its second hearing before an appeals court. How did that go? Yeah, so the decade-old case over e-reserves is back in front of a second panel, a new panel of the 11th Circuit, a second go-round on appeal. And I have to say, I've, I've, you know, as much of a geek as I am, I've listened to the oral arguments three times now. And if I had to make a guess about where this is going, I'd say it's very likely that we're looking at another remand decision back to the district court. In his opening, the publisher's attorney, Bruce Rich, called this a seemingly never-ending case, to which I'd add that it still seems like it's pretty long ways from its conclusion. Okay, so what's your read from listening to the arguments? Sure. So in a nutshell, one judge, William Pryor, seemed very disposed to the publisher's position and, and troubled by Judge Evans's work on the remand decision. Specifically, he repeatedly questioned why Judge Evans went back and redid her fair use analysis for each work when the appeals court in its first decision only ordered her to reweight the factors, giving more weight to factor four, which, of course, uh, our listeners all know is market harm. And what really seemed to bother Judge Pryor is that Evans went back and actually found fair use on the fourth factor where she had found that factor to strongly favor infringement before. So she found factor four favored infringement on 31 claims presented at trial in her first decision. The appeals court said that analysis was correct. But give that factor a little more weight in your fair use, actually significantly more weight in your fair use determination. But on remand, Evans now goes back and redoes the entire analysis and now suddenly finds fair use. I have to say that appears to be a big problem for GSU. Now, GSU attorneys argued that you know she needed to do that in order to figure out how much to reweight uh, her decision. But I don't know if that's the case. And in so doing, the district court certainly seems to, and Judge Evans certainly seems to have opened a whole new can of worms here. On the other hand, uh, another judge, Robin Rosenbaum on the panel, really appeared very skeptical of the publisher's contention that the availability of digital licenses for the works in question should necessarily tip the balance on that fourth factor of market harm, which is a point that the publishers uh, seem to really harp on. If that's the be-all and end-all of the market test, then just by making licenses available, that factor will always strongly favor a finding of infringement, she noted. And that can't possibly be the be-all and end-all of the test, she argued. There was the third judge on the panel, of course, Beverly Martin, but she was much less active and she really didn't ask very many questions. Uh, She was much harder to read, so I don't know where she might come down on this. But she did seem to question why, in light of the recent decision on attorney's fees and curtsaying, the court should uphold Evans's award of attorney fees to GSU. So you've been critical of this case from the start, Andrew Albanese. Do any of these arguments this time around change your read on the case? 
Not really. I think the case is extraordinarily interesting. But to me, win or lose, this lawsuit has just always been a bad idea and a waste of money. You know, it's cost millions of dollars. The, the, the GSE was actually asked for $3.3 million in attorney's fees. And it's really generated a lot of ill will. And in the end, my opinion is, this is my personal opinion, that by the time it's finally decided, it's really not going to matter because licensed access, if not open access, is the way the market is going here. To me, the e-reserves question here has always cried out for a business solution and not a legal decision. You know, I'll put it to you this way. I can say this much with certainty, if nothing else, that no university wants to pay employees to make and monitor copies, support the servers and websites for those copies, train faculty and make to make those copyright decisions, and then worry about the legal risk if they make a mistake. The solution to the e-reserves question, I don't think should be a fair use decision, but more simply, it should be by publishers offering a service that really, truly meets the teaching needs for a reasonable price. And that's it. And, you know, something that's actually cheaper than the do-it-yourself model that the GSU has been relying on. Now, the publishers claim that exists, but come on. GSU isn't spending millions of dollars litigating this case and hundreds of thousands of dollars more every year administering this complex DIY homebrew e-reserve system because they don't want to spend the $3.75 per year per student that the publishers claim would make this go, go away. And this is where the publisher's argument, I think, is a little too clever for its own good. When, when they tell the court that, gee, this 10-year multi-million dollar debacle is basically over a measly $140,000 a year. Year because if that was really true, this case would make no sense for either party. Now, I know the publishers claim that they are afraid that Georgia State's use is if they're ruled fair, then everyone would do it and the entire permissions market would dry up. But I would counter that if the publishers offered a service that truly made financial and pedagogical sense, no university anywhere would ever choose to take on the risk and expense of administering their own e-reserves. So as interesting a fair use case as this is, and I have to say it's been expertly argued by Bruce Rich and the publishers. Uh, in my personal opinion, it was still a mistake to file it because it hasn't led to any clarity around fair use. And it really has created suspicion and enmity between the parties who really should be united in a common mission. And I have to say that was entirely predictable. Well, make no mistake, uh, not in this courtroom at least, it's always a pleasure to hear from Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, who joins me each and every Friday on Beyond the Book. Thanks for the report, Andrew. My pleasure, as always. Coming up next on Beyond the Book, journalists have a lot to keep them busy in 2017. Just in Europe alone, there are Brexit, populism, and nationalism, as well as immigration to cover. The rise of so-called fake news and growing skepticism about professional journalism only make matters worse. The European Publishers Council is a lobby group of chairmen and CEOs from leading European media organizations. Angela Mills-Wade is the executive director for the EPC. It is her charge to take on the notoriously elaborate, even labyrinthine EU on the side of the media business. The European Parliament is a very open organization. So normally speaking, it, it's not difficult to meet uh, the members of the European Parliament who are taking decisions about your future through pieces of legislation. But um, on very controversial issues like copyright reform, uh, it's very crowded. So there are many, many people seeking the time and attention of the members of the European Parliament. We focus on the people who are either writing the reports or the opinions uh, that are to be taken into account by the lead rapporteur 
and the various um, members who are heading up delegations of political parties and who are the most active and the most um, engaged in the debates, whichever committee they're involved with. Uh, we talk to them often more than once, um, answer their questions. We definitely don't talk at them. We try and have a dialogue. On the side of the news in Brussels, next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries Rights Direct and Ixis drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book. Thank you.